Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we will hear from Stephen Perlstein, who this week wrote his final column for The Washington Post, where he had spent three decades. He devoted his final column to discussing the growing belief on the left that the old rules of economics no longer apply, and why he worries that America may learn the hard way that they do. In this podcast, he also talks about why the current COVID-19 relief negotiations are unfolding in such a partisan fashion. Let's listen in. I suspect most of you know a little bit about Steve Perlstein, uh, but let me just touch the highlights. Uh, He is one of the most esteemed economic columnists of our time, uh, uh, combining really tough-minded reporting with the ability to analyze and explain. Uh, As proof of that, in 2000, he received the Pulitzer Prize, I believe, in 2011 uh, uh, for the extraordinary work that he did anticipating, analyzing, and explaining uh, the financial crash uh, that led to the Great Recession. He was one of the few to be in front of the curve, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of people blotted their copybook during that episode. He's a He is a great teacher, uh, has been a professor at George Mason University for about a decade, uh, and uh, he's also an author. Uh, He published a book, I believe, a couple of years ago, almost exactly, entitled, Can American Capitalism Be Saved? His answer, yes, but only if you follow his advice, Uh, and I'll let let him talk about that. Uh, And just in general... Steve functions at the intersection of policy, politics, and process. He's worked on the Hill, and he knows how a bill becomes law or doesn't. And he's up on the kinds of procedures that you're now reading about just about every day on the front page of the newspapers, Uh, things like budget reconciliation, the filibuster, uh, what it means to bring a rule to the floor as a framework for considering legislation in the House of Representatives, et cetera. Uh, Steve is going to take about 15 minutes to lay out his thoughts. Uh, I'm given to understand that he's going to be using the current COVID-19 relief bill as a kind of case study. But if that's a misunderstanding, Steve, you're free to go in, in any way you want. Over to you. Well, thank you very much. Um, And it's good to be back with with all of you um, again. And, uh, and, you know, it's hard to, uh, I can tell you one thing about Nancy. It's it's hard to say no when she asks. Um, She takes, she doesn't take no for an answer. So anyway, I'm glad to be here. Um, We began uh, this year with the optimism that the the COVID relief bill from last December that uh, no labels and uh, problem solvers had a lot to do with that could be a template uh, for future success, particularly in the new Congress, which had very slim majorities, which meant that um, small groups of uh, people willing to work together um, could actually move the needle. 
Um, but it turns out that that's not what hap is hap has happened. Um, the White House and the Democratic leadership uh, is following the same playbook that White Houses and leaderships have been using for the last 20 years, which is to use this um, arcane budget process uh, to get around the Senate filibuster and push through uh, all that they can uh, on a strictly partisan vote once a year, the so-called budget resolution, except this year, because there wasn't a budget resolution last year, they actually have two they can work with. And from the point of view uh, of the Democratic leadership in the White House, this is working brilliantly so far. As you may have noticed, only two, there were only two Democratic defections in the House uh, when that $1.9 trillion uh, COVID, the next COVID release package, the current one, uh, was passed last weekend. Um, and although in the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have managed uh, to knock out the minimum wage as a possibility, uh, uh, and there probably will be one or two other concessions to other moderates, it looks like that will pass in the Senate uh, on similar party line vote. With, by the way, just noting that this legislation will have gone to no Senate committees. It will be held at the desk and then just voted on by the full Senate, maybe amended. Um, but uh, no hearings, no markups, uh, nothing like that. And the next up is, is what will be the giant building back better package. Um, it'll be infrastructure spending, but also spending uh, having to do with climate change, uh, spending uh, new investments in education, healthcare, daycare, worker training. Plus we read today another round of checks uh, in addition to the $1,400 checks that are going to 80% of households under the 1.9 trillion bill going through now, there'll probably be another round of checks in that one. In, in other words, uh, these two packages, the 1.9 and whatever this other one is, four, six, eight trillion, uh, you know, we could be dealing with four, six or eight trillion dollars over the next four years in spending. And again, probably not a single Republican vote for any of it. So why is this happening? Why did the world revert um, to part of the sort of partisan ram it through, rush it through uh, without deliberation, uh, everything negotiated at the top behind closed doors. Why did things revert to that? Well, the short answer to that question is January 6th. From the speaker on down, the view among Democrats, many Democrats is that Republican majority, the Republicans in Congress tried to steal the election and in the process with, with Donald Trump and in the process, they not only undermined democracy but provided encouragement to a violent mob that stormed the Capitol and literally tried to kill them. And they're not about, and they're not really ready to forgive that. So they're animated by anger, but they're animated also by grievance, these Democrats 
grievance about Merrick Garland and grievance about the fiscal irresponsibility uh, of, the, of the Trump tax cut and grievance about 500,000 unnecessary deaths from COVID because of incompetence and, and politicization of, of things as simple as wearing masks and closing bars and restaurants. But that at this point, and I'm going out on a limb here, but I don't think very much, Bill, you may, afterwards you might comment on this. They're also motivated by a fantasy, a fantasy that they can push through the 1.9 trillion they can push through an even bigger investment package that they can beat back COVID by the end of the year and they can get the economy roaring back and they can get cash into the hands of middle-class voters that they can appoint a young liberal justice to replace Stephen Breyer. They can prosecute Trump and his crew and they can move aggressively on a regulatory front on environment, on technology, on antitrust on consumer protections, on employee protections, and they can use those successes to win an even bigger majority in 2022. And that bigger majority will allow them finally to kill the filibuster and expand voting rights in federal elections and extend statehood to DC and Puerto Rico and cancel student debt and increase social security benefits and add the public option to Obamacare. And all of this in this fantasy will be so successful and so popular that Democrats will sweep the table in 24 and leave the Republican Party in shambles, making them the minority party for a generation. And the United States will enter into a progressive paradise. They really believe this. They think it's possible. They think it's within reach. And so the message to any Democrat who's thinking of breaking, breaking ranks and breaking this momentum by worrying about a few hundred billion dollars here and there, the message to those Democrats is that if you're standing in the way of achieving this once in a, in a generation victory, you are going to open the door and usher in the return of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's the message they are getting every day from their leaders. And so far that appeal to democratic unity is working and it's working in two ways. It's keeping the Democrats together and it's being very successful at driving Republicans back into their corner as well. So what I think that means for noble labels is that you have to be realistic about what you can accomplish. The old model that you probably have in your mind of this group of well-meaning people getting together over pizza uh, at night and over coffee in the morning to craft these beautiful policy compromises, that's not gonna work because it misunderstands and ignores the basic underlying problem. And what is that problem? Is it that the country is hopelessly polarized? Well, yes, it is. But uh, that's been true for a long time. The more immediate problem 
and the one that I think we need to focus on is that members of Congress have allowed all the power that they have to essentially flow to leaders who have no interest, none, in bipartisan compromise. Because bipartisan compromise for leaders means that they lose power and that the decisions flow and that the decision making flows back to the members where it used to be and where it belongs with members and committees and floor debates and floor amendments and conference committees, all that messy stuff of democracy. When you hear people refer to regular order, that's what they're talking about. In a sense, the members of the House and the Senate have allowed themselves to become irrelevant. And it's worth just taking a minute or two to demonstrate the ways in which that has happened. It began with the Gingrich Revolution and the decision, I believe, to discourage members from moving to Washington with their families when they're elected. And the, the pitch was, you can't become part of the swamp. And they took this to ridiculous extremes, which means not only did they not move to Washington with their family, which creates a real, a real instinct to go home, but it, it got to the point where they were sleeping in their offices. Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, third in line to the presidency, Speaker Ryan slept in his office until the day he left Congress. And this strategy worked. Republicans actually did beat Democrats by claiming that those Democrats had become part of the swamp. And so Democrats responded by, they stopped living in Washington as well. And before too long, Congress became a three day a week, three week a month, nine month a year operation. And the members spend so much time away, traveling or traveling back and forth that they actually have no time to legislate. And which means that the leaders and their staffs who do live in Washington are here all the time scheming, planning, and basically doing the work of legislating. The next thing leaders did was to create a few huge fundraising apparatus that did two things. Number one, it gave them the money with which to reward members who went along with the leadership and by withholding it to punish those that didn't. But they also drove up the cost of elections so that even when members were in town, are in town, they spend most of their time dialing for dollars across the street from the Capitol at party-owned office buildings that are equipped with little offices and phones just for this purpose. The third thing the leaders did was actually to do a favor, quote unquote, for their members who always wanted to, we're always asking them, oh, gee, can I also be on another committee? And so the leaders started to say yes to these requests. And so you now have senators who, instead of being on one major committee and one minor committee, you have senators who are on three, even four major committees. And you have members of the House, 435 of them, each on two committees. Well, the effect of this was to dramatically expand the size of the committees.
so that they're so big that they essentially can't be a forum for negotiation and compromise. It's really just for show. The members dictate the bill, the chairman dictate the bills to the members and the chairman in turn take their marching orders from the speaker and the majority leader who appoint them. It used to be, for example, in, uh, that, in, that uh, the chairman were only there by seniority. Well, that's no longer true. Now the speakers and, and the policy committees get to decide who are chairman and the committees have essentially become rubber stamps for the leadership. The final thing that the leaders did in the Senate in particular is to schedule twice or even three times a week weekly caucus lunches where the members, Democratic caucus, Republican caucus, where the leaders um, can uh, inculcate message dis discipline and caucus unity. They, can in, they, use these, they use these meetings to enforce that. And they also give members the appearance of having input into decision-making. But it's really the only input that they have. But these caucus lunches and meetings serve another important purpose because they prevent the members from meeting with people on the other side. In the Senate, back when I worked there, which is alas in the 1970s, most members used to eat lunch four or five days a week in the senator's only dining room, which is across from the very big, you know, uh, fancy one that maybe you've, you've, you've seen. But a lot of business was done in that senator's only dining room. Today, I can tell you that nobody uses it. Nobody. So the first step that needs to be taken to revive bipartisanship and compromise in Congress is to really fix this plumbing, is to convince a few members and in this case, we're talking Democratic members because the Democrats are the majority to stand up to the leadership and say, we're just not gonna take this anymore. We wanna do our jobs. We don't like our jobs and that is true of most of them. And we won't vote for you on procedural votes or even substantive votes until you return to regular order real committee hearings, real markups, real floor debates, opportunity for amendments, real conference committees. The members have the power to do this today. You don't need any rules changes. The rules haven't changed. All they need is the courage to do that. Not to say you have to do things our way, you have to do things the moderate way, just let us do our jobs. Because naturally, if they're allowed to do their jobs, the system naturally gravitates toward horse trading and compromise. And unless you can convince, however, the members of the Problem Solvers Caucus or the Common Sense Caucus in the Senate, to take back the power that they have ceded to the leadership and to the White House, I'm afraid all you may wind up with is a nice little debating society and coffee clutch that will allow members to tell themselves and to tell their constituents that they, they're trying 
that they want bipartisanship, that they want compromise, that they want to bring the country together, but that they just can't. Anyway, that's, uh, that's what I thought you might uh, uh, want to start with and, and as, a, as a point of departure for uh, our conversation today. So, uh, did I also mention that Steve is tough-minded and blunt? Uh, if not, I don't need to. <laughs> so, uh, let the first question is from Kay Plant. Kay? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, very interesting. Hi, Hi very interesting comments. Um, the stimulus plan is actually very public, very popular publicly, albeit it's not popular at all with the GOP um, senators and representatives. Do you think that um, the resistance by the GOP will hurt them in the uh, 2022 election, given the bipartisan popularity of Biden's plan? Uh, probably not. I um, mean, you know, a package is popular. What, what does the public know about the package? Well, they know they're going to get a $1,400 check and that unemployment insurance is going to be extended and there's money in there for COVID. And all those things, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, amount to about half the bill. They don't really know what's in the bill. Um, and uh, but I guess and they have no idea how much one point nine trillion dollars is. I don't even know how much one point nine trillion dollars is. It's more than money than you can imagine. It's nineteen hundred billions. <laughs> it's one thousand nine hundred billions. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's popular. Uh, but, you know, if you're a Republican, you can. I can tell you, you can always find things in this thing that would say, this, I, I voted against it for these reasons. I, I don't, uh, the Democrats like to think that, um, but I will tell you that Republicans thought that they could use the tax cut uh, to win uh, the 2018 election, the Trump tax cut. Well, th th they were probably 180 degrees wrong about that. So. Um, I tend to doubt it. It's popular, but as I say, most people don't know what's in it. Not that they should, but they don't. Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, the next question is from Bill Kunkler. Thank you, Bill. And uh, thank you for those very insightful um, comments, Mr. Perlstein. Um, fortunately, our group has Joe Manchin. And I heard Senator Manchin yesterday um, on a call and basically, he sounded like a moderate Republican. He's going to stand firm on not letting the filibuster disappear, um, that the Supreme Court should stay at nine, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, all eyes rest on him at this point, and maybe Kirsten Sinema, if, if you're like me, a Republican, to hold back this progressive wave because you know I see Biden as being a moderate, but um, I just see too much, too much um, in his own party that is going to push, you know, you know, push what I see as modern monetary theory. You know, the Republicans did it in the last year. Now the Democrats want to put it on steroids with all these packages, thinking they can borrow us to an oblivion. So I just like your comments on that. Thank you. 
Well, Joe Manchin has already uh, uh, stopped some things from happening, and, and Kirsten, and, and there may be others. They and maybe others will stop other things. But, and they may even, you know, may be able to point to three, four, five, six of them. But they will not significantly uh, change the size of the trajectory um, of the package. And uh, the reason I suspect is because um, there, there's only one or two of them and they can be bought off with, pro with things in the bill or promises of other things later. I would say about Mr. Manchin that he's in a very difficult political situation. He's a Democratic Senator from the most pro-Trump state in the union. More importantly, he's from a state whose economy depends largely on a fossil fuel that everyone knows is going away. And so if Joe Manchin is doing his job for the state of West Virginia, he is gonna make the best deal he can on coal. He's gonna make it with the president and the majority leader. Uh, and in return for that, he's only gonna do go so far. That would be my answer to you. You need, you. you need many more than that so that the group can't be bought off. And I say bought off, not in the, in the corrupt sense, but just in the sort of legislative sense. So then a quick follow-up. Our mission as a group should be to find a few more Democrat senators to to support strongly it seems to me like it's almost a waste to to support anybody in the house right now that's but that's from a republican perspective no i don't know i i i can't tell you what's going on in the house other than in the house the anger the the just the sheer anger and grievance over january 6th is palpable and um, among the Democrats. And uh, I, I don't know, I just don't know when that will dissipate. Um, yes, you need, I would say, if you say to me, how many do you need working together with their counterpart Republicans in the Senate to, to, to get something going in a, in a sustainable way? Uh, the answer is you need five. Um, you don't need 10 Republicans going up to try to negotiate in public with the president. The bad strategy was a bad idea. Um, and I don't know whether you noticed, but Biden met with moderate Senate Democrats yesterday. You don't want that either. What you want is five Democrats and five Republicans meeting in quiet see what they can do, or five Democrats and five Republicans saying, we're just not gonna play the game this way anymore. So don't bother bringing this stuff to the floor because you will lose. Um, you need to go through regular order. This, 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 um, this infrastructure package is going to be sprawling and large and gonna involve transportation, energy, communication, uh, 
uh, you know, roads, highways, bridges, uh, uh, schools, uh, uh, electric lines, uh, electric stations uh, for for electric cars. You know, I, it's it's going to involve uh, rapid, you know, uh, intercity transit and 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 intracity transit. Um, it's going to be sprawling. It's going to involve public-private partnerships. It's going to uh, and fees, and it's complicated. And you know, you got to run that through committees and and let them think about it and hold hearings and hear from governors and all sorts of interest groups. Um, they don't want to do that. They they want to control everything and do it behind closed doors. And a group of five senators, Republican and five Democrats, could say, we're just not doing business that way. We're not telling you it should be eight trillion and not four or three and not five. We're just we're not telling you that. We don't even know what's in it. But we want to damn well know what's in it, and we want to have something to do with what's in it. And uh, we're not going to do business that way. And that's the first step you need to stop this train. Thank you. Uh, we have we have a list now. Uh, Robert Blackwell, Glenn Lowenstein, uh, Mary Moore Hambrick. Before we move on to the list, Steve, uh, Bill Kunkler brought up a topic that is mentioned much more frequently than it's understood. Uh, and that is modern monetary theory, MMT. Uh, if you think you can do it in three minutes or five minutes, could you explain to us exactly what this theory is and what it says and what it leads to? Um, I'm going uh, to try, but I'm not going to focus it on modern monetary theory because I don't, I don't, I, uh, uh, th that is a very specific thing that came from very specific people. But okay. I'm going to generalize more about why people um, are not so worried about, about debt. Um, and the first reason is that there's a lot of capital, not just in our country. We don't have, we don't have to worry about how much capital there is in the United States and whether government borrowing is going to crowd out private borrowing of the US, of the capital of the, the savings of the United States, because that's, that's now irrelevant. Capital is global, and there is a huge glut of capital in global financial markets. And where that capital wants to go, it turns out, is to the United States, and in particular, to the United States treasury bonds or things that are like treasury bonds. And because of that, we have this, we in the United States have this very unique opportunity to borrow as much as we want for very cheap. And people are even willing to pay us, uh, lend us money to help pay them interest on it. So as long as the world is throwing us money and it's cheap, and they will allow us to roll it over and they have confidence in the dollar because they have to exchange their currency for dollars in order to do this. And then they have to exchange it back to their currency in order to finally get out of these investments. As long as the dollar doesn't fall and as long as there's this glut, the United States is in this rather wonderful position of basically having a free lunch. 
Number two is that the Federal Reserve now has decided that it is going to be buying basically a trillion dollars a year in government debt and private debt, private bonds, government bonds and private bonds. And they have said, we're going to do this for several years, just as they did after 2008. Well, if the government is issuing debt and the Federal Reserve is buying that debt and paying for it with printed money, and if the Federal Reserve at the end of the year is taking the interest payments it earns on those bonds and hands them back to the Treasury because that's what they're required to do under the law, then as a matter of first impression, it would look like we can borrow for free. And this idea has now taken hold. Uh, people think there is no, almost no limit. You'll hear the people who support modern returns. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We understand that there's a certain point at which you get over a tipping point and the world won't do that anymore. But we're nowhere close to that. And you say, well, well tell me where the line is. Well, you, oh, I don't know where the line is. There is no line. So uh, either you believe in this fantasy or you don't. But I guess I just told you what my belief, my own opinion is. Yes, in one word. Okay, back to regular order. Uh, Robert Blackwell. Steve, uh, thanks so much for the presentation. Uh, do you think that there is any hope for a centrist uh, Democratic Party that believes in the free enterprise system anymore? Well, Robert, I can tell from your question that you think the Democratic Party doesn't believe in the free enterprise system. And I think that would be a, that would be a slight mistake. I, I don't think that they, they fundamentally believe in public ownership. Bernie Sanders does, but he's not at the, he's not at the core of the Democratic Party. They, they do believe in capitalism. They believe in regulated capitalism and they believe in a fair amount of I won't say redistribution, although it amounts to that, but they, they do believe in taxing, taxing the very rich to provide a fairly comfortable income floor to all Americans, or at least all Americans who work. So, um, yes, the, the, the Democratic Party is a center-left party. Um, the things they're trying to do now are things that are considered to be sort of accepted practice in much of Europe. Um, and unless you don't think, um, unless you don't think that Sweden and Germany and France practice uh, capitalism, okay, in that case, then they're anti-capitalist. But if you think that they they do practice are part of a free enterprise system, then I don't think that that's necessarily a fair characterization. And, and I say that as not someone who likes, as you can tell from my presentation, I don't like what they're gonna, about to do. Um, this is not to say that I don't think we ought to in, invest in infrastructure, we don't, shouldn't do COVID relief, um, that we shouldn't borrow any more money. I don't think that, but they're obviously going way overboard on all of these things. But well, I, I'm not sure I, I, I want to agree with the premise of your question. Okay, so I, I would just say that as a libertarian, I guess I would take more of like the Milton Friedman view of the world <laughs> to say, you know, there's 
creeping and then galloping socialism uh, or galloping towards socialism. I feel we're now back to the galloping towards socialism. That's the way it feels to me. And it, I would say there's a bit of attractive people in the Democratic Party, like Bernie, as in, you know, says nice things. So now you got a lot of young people who believe in socialism. Here in Chicago, where I am, we've got six uh, socialists now in city council. So I, I just feel it getting farther and farther and farther and farther to the left. Well, it is moving to the left. Um, and they are skeptical. Um, uh, they are skeptical of capitalism, but perhaps with some reason. But uh, you know, I, I it, you know, this is sort of semantic. What's what? What is socialism? Um, uh, uh, I, 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 you know, uh, they, they are certainly in favor of a lot more government guarantees uh, in terms of safety net and government regulation of the way markets work. Got it, thank you. Uh, Glenn Lowenstein. Thank you, Bill. And uh, thank you, Steve, so much. I feel like we're all getting to know you really well here. Um, so what you described was a, almost a freak blue wave that's so big that it crushes everything in its path. And then you when I, in terms of anticipating what their fantasy is. Yes. Right. And so and so then you said you have to be realistic about what can be accomplished and picking a few legislators that have courage. So if you were us and you didn't want to have a nice just um, parlor society for debate. And let's say you picked five Democratic senators and 10 House Democrats. Is there anything that we can do to, or what should we do to make it appealing to fight that fantasy or fight that wave? You know, you're, you're a, 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 for the most part, you're not their constituents, but you are right. their donors. So um, what can you do? I, I would say the most effective thing um, you could do is to assure them that if they're willing to challenge their leadership on process, just process, okay? If they're willing to challenge, that you'll be there for them. And I would, even though once you identify those, I would uh, do what you could because you all, most of you are business people and you know other business people and their districts have business people. And it will make them feel a lot better if it is business people from their districts who are also saying, you know, I think we need to do this. Um, uh, you, you being an outside funder have certain leverage, but I know from working in congressional offices that for Democrats, having, having powerful, influential business people in your district who are on your side, part of your team, um, socially friendly with them, you pick up the phone, uh, they pick up, you, the, they call you, you pull them, you pick up the phone. The Democrats like that. Um, uh, they like having that. I mean, I don't know about, you know, uh, uh, 
OC or whatever her name is, but um, you know, most of them do. Um, and uh, I always felt, I feel here, and I, tell, I, tell, I mentioned this to um, the business roundtable, that this is a real good opportunity because the Republican party is, has gotten, at least those who are elected members, have, many of them so off the deep end that they really can't deal with those. Um, but this is a good opportunity to, to rebuild bridges which have collapsed in the last 30 years with, with moderate uh, Democrats and um, make common cause uh, with them. Um, and um, I think that's the opportunity here um, to do that both at the Washington level, but particularly at the, at the, at the state or district level. Thank you. Uh, next, Mary Moore Hamrick. Thank you, Steve. I think you're spot on. And um, I think that uh, you summarize the situation with process most eloquently. How do we get the um, uh, what's happened and the knowledge of this out more in the public so that there could be more public support of, of this process change of going back to regular order. Um, why, why has there not been enough knowledge of exactly what you've said out there and, and how might that be expanded um, in addition to getting business leaders within the communities to be supportive of, uh, of, of Democrats, who, moderate Democrats who are willing to stand up and say, we need to do this for process. How does one shine some transparency on this top-down um, leadership process that is in, um, stopping the bipartisan conversation. I'm sorry, what, what's your first name? It's Mary Moore. Mary, Mary Moore. So Mary. Uh -huh. um, you know, I was, I've been in the business, I'm about to get out of it, but I've been in the business for a long time of educating the public, informing the public. And a lot of us have a model in our mind that if, if the public just knew and understood, then they would demand and, and that uh, the democracy would work and the right outcome would come up. Um, I, I have come to believe that what I write um, might uh, be inspiring, it might be entertaining, um, but I have long since f uh, given up the idea that we can somehow, somehow uh, through our education, pro public, public education process, change the course of public policy. I think that's really very hard. So my answer to you is I don't think, th the, the public is bored by process. You never get the public interested in process. Um, if they were interested in pro process, they'd be very upset about the filibuster. But, uh, you know, I mean, in Washington, we're upset about it. And, people who are in the, sort of active in politics know about it, but you know, average person, uh, you're not gonna get them interested in, in process. To me, the appeal here, and I, I know this because I've talked to the members and the senators, they do hate their jobs. They do are frustrated. They don't like being infantilized and disrespected. They, and you, the, the appeal can be to them. Do what's in your interest. It's not only right for the country, it's in your interest. 
do your jobs again. I think that kind of encouragement, as opposed to, I'm gonna tell you what you should do about infrastructure, don't do that. Say, you need to take back charge. I, you know, they, they've just fallen too much into the trap that they can't do anything about it, even though they hate the job. And I think that's where um, you, can, you can be helpful. Thank you. Great, okay, we have three questions remaining on the list in about 15 minutes. So if we're disciplined, uh, we'll be able to get through everybody uh, and allow time for some very brief closing remarks. So next on our list, Yolanda, Adrian. Uh, hi, Steve, thank you for being with us. Um, earlier today, um, part of our group spoke to um, a governor, an active governor who uh, from Maryland, who managed to get elected um, a Republican governor in a Democrat state. And he was inspiring um, and interesting. Do the governors have any influence or can they be part of a dialogue that changes um, how we operate in our country? Do they have any relevance in any of this? You know, on some things they can if they get together. Um, you know, if, if the if the governors are are if you if you if you let the governors uh, legislate uh, national policy, they do a lot better job than than the Congress. They they, they work pretty well together. Right. They're they're sort of practical people. They gotta you know. Well, they, they actually to, they actually run states. They actually have to do things, and yeah. uh, and they they compromise and all the time, and they they are more instinctively bipartisan. I'm not sure about Mr. DeSantis, but most of them are instinctively bipartisan. Um, but the truth is on issues that are outside their normal sphere of, of interest and uh, interest, um, you know, I'm afraid not so much. Um, uh, and if they happen to be running for president, then people discount what they say a little bit. Um, and the one you mentioned is running for president. So uh, with taking nothing away from him, but um, if it appears that the reason they're doing it is because they want some get some national attention so they can run for president, then there's a sort of discounting that goes on, at least in the media about it. Um, so uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, they also don't like to uh, spend a lot of time picking fights on the national scene because it, in general is a no-win situation and they, they got plenty of things that they have to handle back home. Um, uh, so I, I, uh, I, in general, the answer is no, I would say. Thank you. Uh, Mel Sokich. Mel? Hi there, Steve. Can you hear Hi, me? Mel. Um, by way of background, I'm, I'm a New York City pragmatic liberal, and I live not far from Central Park. And walking through the park this morning, a young person stops me and gets me to sign a petition for um, another person to get on the ballot for city council president. And it turns out in New York City, and I didn't realize this, in New York City, this, this election is going to be held on a, a ranked choice basis on a ranked choice basis. And I was just wondering about your feelings about ranked choice. My little bit of research, you know, on the issue suggests that it's a way of bringing 
you know, both sides towards the middle and cutting down on some of the rancor, but I'd be interested in your, pers your perspective. It's the single most important thing we could do um, to, to reduce the polarization uh, is to do um, rank choice voting and to do nonpartisan primaries. Those two things would be, would uh, have enormous positive effects. Um, I don't know whether the federal government could force those onto the states. I'm not enough of a constitutional lawyer to know that. Uh, so it might be a state by state uh, uh, slog, but uh, that given, given all the other things that uh, determine the quality of our politics, those are the two best things we could do. Great, great, thank you. Uh, Michael Small. Thank you. Hi, Steve. Um, yeah, I totally agree with your perspective um, and um, no labels over the years has tried to combat a lot of the trends um, with some hard fought um, victories. But um, one of the things we did about a few years ago when Pelosi became speaker was we had the speakers project and did some things to give um, power to the rank and file, including if 290 co-signers um, on a bill, it had to it had to go to the floor. Um, what else could we do along those lines to give power back to the rank and file? You know, a simple thing um, in the House, um, if you if if your Democratic members would do it, is just say we're, we're just not we're just never voting for a closed rule, um, which means that there will always be amendments on the floor. Doesn't mean there's an infinite number of amendments. In the House, you wouldn't want to do that. The Rules Committee gets to decide not only how many amendments and how much time the debate is, but they can even dictate whose amendments, and they often do. Um, uh, but just as a starting point, um, which is sort of what that effort you, you spoke of is, is, we're just not, you know, we're not going to vote for any, any closed rules, so don't bring them here. And we're not going to discriminate between the one, the legislation that we like and that we don't like. We're just not voting for closed rules, so don't bring it to us. And if, if the group would stick together and if the Republicans would stick there and then when it's a Republican majority, they would do the same, they essentially can change the rules of the House without changing the rules of the House um, by, by using their votes the same way. And there are similar things you can do in the Senate. It's not so clean and easy and neat, but the, if a group of senators who believed in regular order wanted to insist on regular order um, uh, and, and insist on the ability uh, to, you know, to have debate and to offer amendments, uh, they, could, they could do that too. And, and they have to be sort of hard-nosed about it, um, which is, you know, they'll people come to them and say, oh, this is really important. You got to make an exception here. And, and they, are, they just have to say, no, we're, we're just, <laughs> You know, there's certain things that uh, uh, come first. And if you have 51 votes, then you'll be able to pass it. And if you don't, you don't. But I, I, we're not, um, we're, we're, for, we're for this open process and for, and for legislating and for making our jobs meaningful. Um, again, I, if you just keep putting it in the terms of making your jobs meaningful again, believe me, that will resonate with them. Great. Okay, Steve. Uh uh, we have time for one more question, uh, and I'm going to pose it. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
And I want to take you back to something you said about half an hour ago, because it really points straight at our mission for the next few months. Everybody knows that the next bill coming down, the, the next big bill coming down the track, the Build Back Better bill, is probably going to dwarf the bill that is now under consideration in the Senate. And not only that, it's going to be much more complicated than the, than the bill in the Senate. You described it as sprawling. I suspect the vast majority of standing committees in the Senate will be committees of jurisdiction for one piece or another of this bill. Absolutely. Uh, And so if this is going to be a good bill as well as a big bill, there really is no alternative to regular order. I don't even see how the leadership could write a bill like this behind closed doors if it wanted to but maybe it can. Uh, and so I'll put, the, I'll put the question this way. Regular order is not sufficient to produce a good bill, but it is necessary for producing a good bill of this magnitude and complexity. What can we do to maximize the chances that the bill, whatever its substance turns out to be, will be done in the right way? Well, uh, 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 let me see if I can answer them in lots of ways. I mean, the thing you can do is get a core of people who won't, who who will stand in the way of it unless it is done that way. And the way you do that is you tell them, you tell the leadership in the White House this early and often. Don't even try, because the first time you come for a vote, we're going to screw it up for you. And you know. If five Democrats say it, I can assure you that the 50 Republicans will go along with the screwing up part. <laughs> they'll, they'll be glad to help those five. Um, so if you tell them ahead of time and then you say, well, well they, they'll say, well, what do you mean regular order? And they, well, we don't want this dragging on for 18 months. You say, fine, let's have a resolution that says that the committee's you send this to the committees and they have 90 days or 120 days to report out their thing. If they don't, then they are discharged from that. You understand this, Bill. I think probably everyone does. So if, if the, 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 the leadership and the White House will come back with all these things, well, if you do this or this, all these bad things will happen, fine. Then let's set up a process and let's agree that it won't go on forever. And then what you could do, Bill, is in, in the Senate, the, the Republicans could be helpful if there were 10 of them, they could say, we will not filibuster the motion to take it up. We will promise not to participate in a Republican effort to prevent you from bringing this to the floor. That will assure the, reassure the White House and the Democratic leadership. Um, then, you can, then the thing, Bill, is in committee, you have members, that is no labels and, you know, the, the common sense caucus or the, you have members in every committee. And every committee has a Republican Democratic split of only one person. So one Democrat on every committee, if, if that Democrat wants to defect, can screw things up for the Democratic leadership. So on every committee, you can start working the, the process that you all love to do, which is to to do those wonky compromises. Well, that's where you have the opportunity to do them. You also have the opportunity to do it on the floor. 
the 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 way the leadership wins here is they they give you an all or nothing choice on the whole bill if you were to take a bill and break it down into parts let let me give you an example just just imagine that they could have put the minimum wage into this 1.9 bill so if there was an opportunity on the floor to say put an amendment to ex to take out the one, the, the minimum wage uh, bill of 15 and insert $12 that amendment would pass probably with 60 votes uh, if not more in the senate okay but no one is ever going to get a chance to do that if the whole package is given on a take it or leave it basis. So allowing amendments and allowing consideration um, of amend amendments on the floor and allowing committee consideration will make it possible to break down this big complicated thing into its parts and have people vote on each part. And if you do that, you will get much more bipartisan, moderate results. Um, because that is where the country is on every one of these issues. The problem is that if, the, if, the, if you have an all or nothing vote and it's made as a, as a party unity vote, you know, a sort of, a, uh, what do they call that in, uh, in England? You know, a, a vote of confidence vote. Well, you have no choice to vote for the whole thing, including things you don't like. Breaking it down is exactly what you need to get moderate moderation and bipartisanship. And that's what the leadership never wants to do well, <laughs> because they know they'd lose. The, the leadership knows that if the, if, if, if the Senate were allowed to decide what level of minimum wage, it would be 11 or $12. So they don't want to allow a vote on that. Well, uh, I want to thank you for giving us such clear marching orders. Uh, and uh, no, seriously, uh, you've laid out three or four critical steps, including something that I don't think we've paid a lot of attention to up until now. And that is making sure there is at least one Democrat on each of the crucial committees who's thinking about these things the way we are and you are. Well, that would be... With, with all Democrats on three committees, I can assure you the arithmetic works out that you will have a member on all the committees because everyone's on every committee now. All right. Well, that, that's, that's useful information. At any rate, uh, you've given us a lot to think about. And now in, clo in closing, I want to give the group one more thing to think about. Uh, you heard almost an hour ago about a young representative from Maine, uh, Jared Golden. Uh, who defected from uh, the other you know, 200, 219 House Democrats because he could not object, he could not accept the process by which the bill had been created. And so he cast a vote of con conscience against it. Uh, and believe me, that vote is going to make his life more difficult, not easier. I just want to urge you, if you like the kind of politics that we've been talking about for the, uh, the past hour, then you have to like the elected officials who do politics that way at some considerable risk to their political careers. And we can reduce that risk if we support doing the right 
thing. And that's why we're doing this for Jared. And we've done a lot of it in the past for others who've done the right thing uh, against considerable odds. And we're going to keep on doing it. So uh, I think we've we've covered all the business that we're assembled to uh, carry out today. So we stand adjourned. And thanks again to Steve. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.